that you also really need to look at, okay, how is it designed? Because 80% of the environmental impact of a product comes from the design. So if you so if you start from the design and, and you look at how it is designed and how you can make that more in, in what the, the direction we choose is more circular or modular, um, then you can really make a change. So So we started to look at that instead of right away at the materials. Hi there, and we are back with another episode of the Future Ready Podcast, where we explore how to build future-ready organizations in a new never normal. My name is Arne Kötting, founder of Cozin and your host. In today's episode of our sustainability season, we explore how to achieve real change by engaging entire organizations in sustainability effort. That is, how to bring about change at every step of a company's value chain. The task we have at hand is far from easy. How can we weave sustainability into an organization's fabric? Fatboy takes this challenge very literally. The company is known for its iconic beanbags, but an even cooler thing about them is their sustainable approach to product design. Fatboy's home and garden goods are created to be sustainable across their whole life cycle. They are modular, recyclable, and made from responsibly sourced materials. Did you know that 80% of a product's ecological footprint is decided in the design phase? This means that if a product's design is unsustainable, companies can only improve their impact marginally down the value stream. This is why Frauke Brunsma's work is so inspiring. When this episode was recorded, she was working in the Sustainability Procurement and Legal Department at Fatboy. She has since left that position and now works as a self-employed sustainability and communications consultant, as well as a board member at the G-Star Raw Corporate Foundation. Her background combines legal expertise with decades of experience in the fashion industry. And in her previous role at G-Star, Frauke played a key role in the creation and implementation of the company's sustainability roadmap, a journey that has started 16 years ago. Frauke is a true sustainability veteran who worked in the field long before this topic arrived in all boardrooms. Today, we are lucky to hear her keen insights on the concept of the circular economy, the importance of product design, the role of consumers in sustainability transformations, and more. Welcome to the Future Ready podcast, Frauke. It's great to have you. Thank you, Arne. Really nice to be invited. Frauke. Let's start with, um, you know, you sharing a little bit about, about your very own sustainability journey. So how come you embarked on the sustainability um, path and how come you also ended up with Fatboy, where you are currently working at? Yeah, thanks. Well, um, it's already, um, I think, 16 years ago that my, my journey in sustainability started. So um, at that time, I was working in the fashion industry at the denim brand. Uh, G-Star and they um, encountered the Clean Clothes campaign, which is an action group in the Netherlands, mm -hmm. trying to improve the um, working conditions for um, uh, employees in the fashion industry, then, of course, in the production countries. Okay. And they um, accused the brand of um, yeah, misconduct or bad working conditions at the supplier. And that's, I think, it's where my journey started, because at that time I was a, a legal counsel at the brand. and. Um, And the whole sustainability uh, topic was not officially formed within that brand. Right. It's like, 20, like around 16, 17 years wow. back. Um, so at that time, 
I got the opportunity to build their whole sustainability journey of sustainability roadmap while dealing with this case, a public case. And at all, also at the same time, uh, the brand decided to set up the foundation to support like local communities in the productions where they, of in the countries where they produce. So that's kind of where it, where it all started. Okay, so that is the G-Star GSRD Foundation that that yeah. that, that G-Star then founded. Yeah, right. is well. it is it a typical kind of because many of our community, many listeners have a background also in communications or so. I found it super interesting your legal background. Is it is it a common one or are you a rare species in this field? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not sure. I, I know a few more who, who have a like a legal background, but. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I, I got the opportunity. I'm really happy that I got the opportunity um, mm -hmm. to move in it, uh, into this direction. But uh, I think um, the advantage at that time was that I I, I was dealing with supplier declarations, right. looking into laws and regulations, into what type of uh, compliance had to be set up. So I started sustainability from that angle, working mainly on social conditions at factories. Mm -hmm. and, and that's where it all started. So it was an advantage maybe to have that background at that time mm. uh disadvantage of course that i had to have a deep dive into the topic to fully understand what it all yeah uh, uh consisted of, of which right. topics belong to building up a good sustainability roadmap uh, uh, for a brand and i guess in back then you talked 15 16 years i guess the attitude of companies were more when it came to sustainability was more in terms of defending uh, defending attitude yeah. so defending the license to operate and yeah. not so much in terms of using this as an opportunity to position reposition the company and and use this a little bit more proactively yeah no no, no I, i agree that was at that time that was the the way forward uh, we also at that time said yeah that's Hey, you accuse us of something, but it's that is not our responsibility. It's the responsibility of the supplier locally. Mm -hmm. He has to take care of his employees. But that turned around very, very quickly when this became a very public case. Uh, and also, we took our responsibility very quickly and understand, okay, something needs to improve. We need to take another um, uh, of a more formal sustainability route with our suppliers and within our company. And that's when, when we started to set up the whole roadmap for that brand mm -hmm. and I, I worked with them for over 19 uh, 16 years sorry and, and then i think when we launched in 2019 our our uh, most sustainable denim which was also um, certified by the cradle to cradle standards mm -hmm. with the gold certificate that was kind of the yeah crowning achievement of all the work we did for all the sustainability work because within that standard they assess kind of all the different levels social environmental mm -hmm. your materials everything is looked at by that standard and then i took the decision after that crowning achievement to move on okay so your mission was done felt a little bit like i had to move on can you tell us a little bit more about this cradle to cradle approach in the fashion industry so what were the specifics of that very jeans denim that you developed as a company and how was it different in terms of sourcing production etc now i think the fact was that there was a special denim that was called a cradle to cradle label certification right. okay but within that standard they also look at a kind of everything you do that it, they look at all the different elements in your sustainability work so they look at your supply chain they look at the social conditions in your supply chain at the environmental conditions so you have to have like everything up to standard or even beyond to reach 
higher levels in the standard. So we were really happy to achieve that uh, and, and also felt it was kind of yeah, mm. uh, a, a great achievement to do that as the first brand. You mentioned that you have experience in the fashion industry where you also had some sustainability challenges to tackle. Maybe first off, how long have you been working at Fatboy? Uh, two years. Two years. Two and, years. And for all of, of the people who might not know... <laughs> what is Fatboy? Fatboy, <laughs> exactly. What, what is it in a nutshell? Yeah, in a nutshell. It's a, a Dutch brand, a lifestyle furniture brand, which was founded in 2002. And I think, or I hope, it's really known to many people for the beanbag. Um Yeah, so the beanbag is really known, but there's more. It's really a lifestyle brand. So we also sell a lot of lighting. Uh, maybe the uh, there is an iconic little lamp, white lamp, uh, right. which is portable, called Edias on the Petit, which is also quite famous. Yes. Um, but we also sell uh, furniture, like a couch or outdoor furniture. Can you give us a sense about the size of the business in terms of employees, in terms of annual revenue or something, just that we get a sense? We have around 80 employees and the turnover is around 50. Yeah. 50, 50 million. So what are the biggest, what would you say, what are the biggest challenges for the um, furniture industry when it comes to um, sustainability? Yeah, the furniture industry, I think when... When I started, I saw that they were really looking into materials. Many of the furniture brands are looking at, okay, how can we use more sustainable materials for our products? Um, and then I took kind of took a deep dive because, of course, I thought fashion, furniture, sustainability topics, it's all the same in all, all the different mm -hmm. industries. It was, of course, not. And after the deep dive, I, I, I looked at the different brands in the industry. And I think IKEA is kind of... Um, leading the game in within this industry, that you also really need to look at, okay, how is it designed? Because 80% of the environmental impact of a product comes from the design. Super so if interesting. You, so if you start from the design and, and you look at how it is designed and how you can make that more, what the, the direction we choose is more circular or modular, then you can really make a change. So we started to look at that instead of right away at the materials. That is super interesting, um, the, the, the fact, I wasn't aware that so much is really depending on, on, the, on the design. So in other words, if you fail in this very early stage, you're just working on the last kind of 20% in terms of your sustainability ambitions. Yeah, we found out that it really starts with looking at the design. That it, and then, of course, you also need to look at the materials and you also need to look at all the other steps. But if you really, if you take it from there... Mm -hmm. From the core, then you can really make it a more sustainable product. I come to this in a, in a second a little bit more because I'm really, really curious to find out more about how you develop that strategy and how that trickled down to you know production and, and sourcing. But before we move into um, this, can you tell us a little bit about where this topic of sustainability sit within the organization? So who owns it and how is it kind of implemented on all departments? Yeah, it sits, um, I think, yeah, it is at board level. It's, uh, we are a, a small, medium-sized company. So um, I report directly to the board, okay. uh, which is our CEO, um, but also the, our creative director. So they jointly um, are the board of our company. And I also report to both. So mm -hmm. it's not only with uh, the CEO, but also with the creative director. And then 
Uh, my role is more of an accelerator. So um, yeah, they, there already was a lot of work done in, with regards to sustainability. And I, when I joined, I kind of tried to compile it and, and set the roadmap for the future together with them and together with the organization. And then I think because it's a, a, a smaller company, it's also easy. There's an advantage that we can move fast and that the responsibility for the topic is really shared and everybody's involved. And for some specific topics with, within our roadmap, we uh, set up working groups. So we need mm -hmm. people from all the different departments. And departments within Fatboy are small, uh, maybe a compile of eight, ten. Uh, my own is, on, is five people. So, And that's not only for sustainability. So there are small teams. So um, with, the advantage really is that you, that you can move fast. So you mentioned that when you joined Fat Boy, you co-created its roadmap for the future alongside the board. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that process? Because I guess it's an interesting topic, especially for smaller companies who maybe want to start their journey on the sustainability topic. So can you please bring us back in time two years ago when you joined? What did you do first and how did you engage with the organization to develop that roadmap? Well, of course, I had to myself do a deep dive into the industry and understand. So I did a whole assessment of what are all the brands in this industry doing because I was coming from fashion and I knew everything mm -hmm. about what was going on in the fashion industry. So I looked into, um, into the different organizations or industry peers competition, what they were doing. And also, of course, looked into, into the organization, what they already had on paper were really doing. There was already ESG reporting that mm -hmm. was set up. So that was a good start for me to first look into the ESG reports of the past years. And when I came and joined Fatboy, the question was really, hey, we, we use a lot of materials, but they're not yet sustainable. Mm. Uh, how can we make them more sustainable? So I also took in the beginning that angle to look at their uh, strategy and set it up. But while doing that, we, we assessed the uh, materials or what, which materials have the most impact, which should we, uh, change, uh, because then we have a most of the impact, make most of the impact. And then slowly we thought, okay, yeah, it's really complicated to change your materials. The materials are expensive. We are small. It's di more difficult to reach the, like, the minimum order quantities for certain materials if you're mm -hmm. by yourself or, There's not a constant flow of the materials that we're looking for. So okay. we kind of got a bit stuck in, okay, how can we change that and have still have a good flow of progress? And then we, um, we also at a certain point looked at, okay, we have a lot of spare parts and repair parts. Can we start to, um, solve some of the questions some of our customers have with that they, complained that they buy the little iconic of uh, the lamp that I mentioned, the Edison de Petit. Sometimes it's it's a portable lamp. So when mm -hmm. the portable lamp, sometimes it falls. It's not have people drop it per accident, but then it can break. So we got people who already had that lamp for like 15, 15 years or 10 years or five years that asked us, okay, it's broken and I really want to repair it. And we were not able to provide something. So uh, our CEO asked him, can you look into that again? Because we looked into it in the past, but it doesn't seem to work because there are so many laws and regulations we're not allowed because there's uh -huh. a CE marking on it. But in the meantime, uh, the, the eco-design standard already was put into place and that changed our possibilities. So if you want to offer a repair kit to a consumer, mm -hmm. uh, 
they have to be able to, uh, of course, it has to be safe, but they also have to be able to repair something with kitchen tools so ah. that they do not need to buy complicated tools to, to repair a lamp. Ah, I wasn't aware. Yeah, so after we looked into that, uh, in, into the laws and regulations, what was possible, we, we, we developed that repair kit for that lamp. So you were able to remove the battery uh, uh, or um, the PCB mm-hmm. or optics or tooling to turn mm-hmm. the lights on and off. And once we launched that, we got so many like positive feedback from our consumers that we looked into, hey, we have so many service parts already in our warehouse. That's something that comes from mm-hmm. our DNA because our brand DNA stands for like timeless design. It has to be from quality, but it also has to be plug and play. So most of our products are already designed for disassembly and designed for mm-hmm. as a modular product. So while we were... Yeah, developing those repair kits, we kind of have an epiphany from hey, that is our essence or that is really close to our DNA. And then developed, okay, if that's what we are good at and that fits our mm-hmm. product and you can easily repair, yeah, we should we should focus on that, on the modularity of our products, the fact that you can disassemble that. And that's kind of how we slowly, step by step, moved away from only looking at materials I had a deep dive in, in, in all everything that was going on in the industry and, and knowing at that time, understanding that if you really look at the design, you can really change your impact, yeah. uh, which, which I mentioned before. And this modularity focus that you then took, did it have a lot of impact on the product development or um, or were the products already more or less there? No, no, no. That's what I, what I mentioned is that it's really part of our DNA. And we yeah. already develop products that are plug and play. So we ship products, also very bulky products that you have to assemble yourself at home uh, because we ship furniture from an mm. online store. So uh, when our design designers make a new product and they, for example, develop an outdoor couch, we ship it from our online store, which like the regular DHL and you get it flat packed and you have to assemble it yourself. So eh, from the design, we already make products very modular or mm-hmm. a product that you can just assemble yourself at home. Yeah, super. So the other way around, mm-hmm. eh, you can also disassemble it to repair it. Or we also offer spare parts because that's how it's delivered to your home. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. And you mentioned that you heard this feedback from clients on and on in terms of, you know, the request to repair things. How do you kind of, how do you do this in Fatboy? How do you kind of collect the feedback or the inputs from clients? How do you gather client inputs and ensure that this is fed back into the organization when it comes to sustainability improvement ideas? Yeah, we are a small organization and our the team that has the most of direct contact with us consumers is the service team mm-hmm. on our website you can find a lot of information and you can also share your complaints but it's also very easy to connect with our service team so they are the ones who really collect all the information they get of course they get positive feedback but they also get the complaints mm-hmm. and from the complaints we uh, we work together so our the quality team sustainability team and the service team we all work together so when the complaints come in or the feedback comes in, yeah, we review how, how we can improve something. And, and most of the time it's linked being more sustainable. Uh, for example, that, that the complaints about the ACE and the, re- the PT, we want to repair it and there are no repair kits. Mm-hmm. And that pushed us into that direction of, okay, how can we how can we develop a repair kit for that product? And then we we started with developing more repair kits for other lighting, but also offering more parts on our website for other products 
You mentioned that you offered, you did this switch then in offering repair kits. Now, obviously, um, in the past, then people would have bought whole new lamp, which, you know, might have been more revenue for the company. So how was the discussion internally? I guess, you know, you and the marketing team were in favor of, you know, offering these repair kits. Were there also critical voices from maybe from controlling that says, well, then we will sell less products or we it will jeopardize our revenue because the repair kits are relatively cheaper than a replacement of the whole lamp. What was the kind of discussion you had there? I think because uh, the whole topic is also the board or CEO is really involved and she really feels, okay, huh? we need to deliver quality products and long lasting and, and, uh, and, and they need to have a long lifespan. Mm-hmm. Um, the the fact that we want to offer repair kits and spare and service parts is not a topic of discussion okay. has has not been a, such a discussion topic but of course we had to look at all the different products for um, a, a lamp uh, you want to offer repair parts because you can enlarge the lifespan of that lamp but for example a product that is uh, for example a beanbag mm-hmm. it, it only com- it has kind of two components it's a mm-hmm. uh, the cover this, yeah. and the filling in the product. So it was, if we would, if we start selling uh, the covers, that there you get, there we had some of the tension between, okay, if we start selling covers, we will probably indeed sell less beanbags. Yeah. Uh, because then you can easily yeah change yeah. Uh, your cover. But the whole product is that kind of that cover. So there, yes, we had discussions and we're still did not find, took a decision there. Mm-hmm. But the next, another example is, for example, the Sumo sofa. That's a sofa, big sofa. Yeah. It's quite a high quality product. It's also, it's at a, yeah, a fair price, but it's not so cheap, I have to say. Mm-hmm. But it's a very nice product. It's a modular sofa. But we do offer with this sofa, we do offer new covers so that you can, If you feel, okay, now I'm fed up with my pink sofa, uh, you can buy a new cover. And there we took the decision very okay. yeah, deliberately. Okay, there we do want to offer that uh, extra cover. Mm. So it's always related also to the original selling price. Uh, what's, the, what's, your, what's the best strategy then? Yeah, what the best strategy is. And maybe mm. in the future um, that we will also start selling covers for, uh, for example, an original Uh, for a beanbag. But uh, what, what about, about the beanbag? Because I, I told you I have that here at home. And it's so, you know, you just, for those people who don't know it, it's this huge bag and you just sink in it and it's nice. What are the, what are the subjects that are in it? Is it are they uh, recycled plastic or, or whatever, you know, because nobody will see what's in the bag as long as it's kind of cozy and nice. Could you, couldn't you put all kind of sustainable plastic or plastic from oceans in that bag? Yeah, we're already looking into um, uh, changing the material in our beanbags for a very long time. But we um, And maybe we have found the solution uh, now because it, it took a lot of development okay. outside of Fat Boy. Currently in the beanbag, you, there are APS pearls. So it's a, it's, it is a type of plastic, uh, all right. but with filled with air. So it are little, yeah, plastic uh, beads with air. Okay. You can if to you make take, it cozy and nice when you sink. Yeah, in. when you sink in, you can um, you can recycle them very easily. 
But there we, we saw that, okay, in the Netherlands there, you can return those to the recycling station or your local recycler and they can recycle it. Uh, but not in every country they, they collect that type of material at the moment. Mm. So we looked into f- trying to find like a bio-based version, but the price was really, really high. And then the beanbag would also be, uh, the price of the beanbag would increase tremendously. But now we looked into, okay, uh, can we just make that change step by step? So mm-hmm. that's what we're looking into, to change, see what the possibilities are to change that material or offer uh, refills from mm. uh, the biodegradable version. But then you start mixing and that's also not good because you don't want to mix biodegradable and mm-hmm. uh, non-biodegradable. Yeah. So there are still a few uh, challenges that we have there to find a more, really more sustainable filling. Uh, we also looked at seagrass, if that would be an option. Okay. Um, if, if that would, yeah, you keep, keep the, like the type of seating comfort that you are looking uh-huh. for. But not n- not yet. But uh, it, it is still uh, one on our wish list to uh, change it soon. Super interesting to hear a concrete example about how you need to balance like um, costs and also you know convenience of the product. So um, yeah, that's really really interesting. In general, you mentioned sometimes you know the increase of price that that certain things would have if you would change it and make the products or the ingredients a little bit more sustainable. Um, how willing are your clients to pay a sustainability premium? What is your view on that topic? I think it's it's a complicated one. We, we currently don't put premiums on our products to see if, if, we, if we change mm. the material and we communicate that it's a more sustainable material, that what, if it would work. So I, mm. we didn't, did not test anything like that yet mm. within Fatboy. But I, I think a product needs to com- be compiled of like, uh, has to have a good quality and a fair price. Mm. Uh, and then it, it's something that you, and, and you like the product and because you mm. like the product, you buy it. Mm. Um, and, and so I don't see, I don't, I don't know. And I don't see yet that people are really willing to pay a okay. premium for sustainability. So it's not a differentiating uh, uh, f- b- b- factor um, in that industry. I guess it's different in the fashion industry where, where people are also much more educated and aware about the um, ecological kind of impact that closing industry has um, in different countries. No? So I guess then there is more of a social awareness on, on, on that topic, no? Yeah, maybe, maybe that's the problem, that in the fashion industry, we already educated a lot of customers on, on sustainability and yeah. what is more sustainable. And within in the, fa- the furniture industry, maybe we're a bit behind in educating our consumer on what is a good product and why would a product be more sustainable. And it also, I also figured out that it's 80% of the impact is in the design of a product. Now I know that. I can make better decisions and maybe also use that knowledge to yeah, to buy Mm. more sustainable products but uh so I, I think we lack we lack education i also did not find in the netherlands then kind of an organization that is uh, uh dealing with all those topics and educating consumers on fashion mm. we have w- there are a few organizations but really in depth i think i think we can really improve that uh the, the sustainability of the communication about more mm-hmm. sustainable furniture interesting so consumers um, these days ask for traceability in, in products. So where are products made, by whom, 
and some organizations are using the concept of this product passport for it. Do you think this is a will be a topic for um, for Fatboy? Yes, it is. It is because we put I've put it in our on our roadmap, ah. and I think it's also something uh, that is something consumers are asking for. They want to know where something is made. They they slowly they do prefer goods being made more close to home instead of in China. They do want to understand what type of chemicals are used or how sustainable something is. So it's, I think a product passport is also a tool for communication to explain your consumer why a product uh, is maybe better than another and they can make an informed decision. Uh, and on the other hand, I also see that 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 a tool like a product passport is also something you can use internally as a mm. brand. Mm. Because if you set certain goals and you want to start to communicate, you want to communicate uh, yeah, better results than mm -hmm. eh, uh, bad results. So it also pushes you internally to improve and improve and to mm -hmm. keep the progress going. So uh, creates I, some I, sort of kind of healthy competition within competition, the organization. Yeah, to get, to improve on the topics that you put into your product passport. Interesting. And what about the rise of resale markets? Reselling is a very effective way to make industries more circular. Plus, it's becoming a huge business now, especially for lifestyle products. Does Fatboy have any plans to start reselling used goods? What Now, what we're currently doing is that um, sometimes we have returns and we look yeah. at the returns. Okay, can we still fix them and, and resell them and then... We do that in uh, our outlet twice a year. So that's a physical outlet, okay. not, not yet online. So that's mm -hmm. two times a year we organize something like that. But we do not yet ask people to return it to us uh, so that we can remanufacture or yeah. repair and then resell on our website, for example. Maybe that also has to do with the size of our company. Also, mm -hmm. the fact that we only have a warehouse in the Netherlands and we sell worldwide and online. So people need to start uh, shipping back to us. Mm -hmm. I think it would maybe be an interesting type of model to look at it when we're uh, from just from the Netherlands, because that's a market that we where mm -hmm. we're in physically mm -hmm. based and that you can also control for the resale. And I do see that within the, the Netherlands online platforms, retailers start to collaborate with resellers. So they, they sell new product, but they also start to sell vintage or yeah, exactly. refurbished uh, product on their website. So mm -hmm. the consumer can take. Yeah, make a make the a choice. decision. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the choice. Okay, I'll buy something new or I'll buy, yeah, refurbished product or vintage product. Mm -hmm. But uh, it it is something f for the future. Eh? With our circular roadmap, it is it is a loop that we also need to close mm -hmm. to to see how we can get our own product back and how we can uh, repair it and resell it. So I definitely think it's an, a topic for the future. I, I do think that we need to partner with somebody because we're such a small organization. Mm. It's really difficult. It's almost In terms a business. Of logistics, no? Yeah, but it's also also almost a new business next to yes. your regular business. And and maybe in the future, uh, that is the new business model. And there's only that as a business model. Mm -hmm. yeah, if we go to a really closed loop and a circular uh, economy. Uh, but I think we, we made a small step with... Uh, When we get returns, we look if we can still still resell them then in an outlet. Mm -hmm. um, and, and maybe the next step would be that you start selling uh, something like that on your website mm -hmm. and then take steps. 
So you mentioned small steps. Where would these be leading Fatboy? Uh, or what is the ultimate objective the company wants to achieve in terms of sustainability? Now, with the, the fact that we link to our DNA and, and the fact that we know that uh, 80% of the impact lies in the design uh, and the fact that hey, we, we all know what's going on in the world, uh, that we really feel strongly about moving towards a circular economy. So we really set up a circular roadmap mm -hmm. um, and we've set up three pillars. The first pillar is the repair and care pillar. Okay. Then we have the reduce and recycle pillar and the change the chain. Our repair and care pillar is really that we want to, um, have, when you buy a product, you have, you get maintenance tips. You understand how to care for your product and what you can do to extend the, the lifespan of a product, uh, either by taking good care, maintenance, or you can buy a repair part for your product. Mm -hmm. and then reduce and recycle. We really want to focus on, okay, how can we reduce the amount of materials used, but also if you really want to say goodbye to your product, how can you recycle? Uh, but we also look at the materials in that pillar. Mm -hmm. So more sustainable materials, looking into uh, safe chemicals, um, uh, and, and the materials I mentioned, but that you can also disassemble. If you want to recycle, you have to be able to disassemble, but that also comes, of course, with the design. And then the last pillar is really more the change the chain. Is that To me, that's more the back end. You need... You need to know where you produce. And that's also input for, for example, for the product passport. Uh, you need to know where you produce, uh, what the labor conditions are there, what the footprint is of your product and of logistics, mm. uh, the packaging, um, and of course, of our own company and organization. Mm. The own production. Yeah. 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 Or the so own facilities. Yeah. Facilities, yeah. Facilities. How do you measure progress then? How do you know, you know, um, you're successful? Yeah, that's the next step that we're looking into. So how can we measure this and how can we yeah, also report on these three pillars? Mm -hmm. uh, and that's that's a topic we're busy with now. So uh, we uh, within our ESG reporting, we did small uh, footprint calculations and we need a bigger one, including also scope three. We're now also looking into, okay, how can we measure what kind of standards of Yeah, when when do we feel that our product is really circular? So we're looking into all the different tools now, mm -hmm. and I think there are so many. Trying to find the one tool that really fits our brand to start measuring and also reporting about it. So that's a, a good question, but it's also a, it's also a complicated one. It's hot on your desk yeah. right now. Yeah. All right. Yes, it is. Hey, listeners, allow me to stop for a second to explain some terminology. Frauke has just mentioned a three-scope system for measuring sustainability progress. That's a system developed under the Greenhouse Gas Protocol. By dividing emissions into three groups, it helps measure progress towards the huge reductions needed to limit global temperature rise to well below 2%, the central target of the Paris Agreement. Scope 1 emissions are direct emissions, that is, those that a company causes by operating the things it owns or controls. These can be caused, for example, by running machinery to make products or simply by heating up buildings and using computers. Scope 2 emissions are indirect emissions. These emissions result from the production of the energy that a company buys. Installing solar panels or purchasing renewable energy would reduce a company's scope 2 emissions. 
Scope 3 emissions are also indirect emissions, meaning those not produced by the company itself. They differ from Scope 2 because they account for all other emissions produced along the value chain, including those produced by customers. So how was this circular um, economy roadmap perceived within the organization? So tell us a little bit about the mood, how, how people like different departments, different teams received that. Is this full support, full buy-in, or was it like pushback and, ah, no, we can't do that? No, no, we didn't, no it's, it was really nice. And, um, also, just recently, we did a whole session within the organization in small groups, everybody uh a kind of a workshop on okay where are we heading what are we doing and and what would it uh, mean for your role and they all really understand it, it and, and that's also what we felt when uh when we finally came to our roadmap but it's it 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 fits our dna it fits the brand so it's easily to understand and it also sparks energy because you understand it oh yeah of course we had it's it's the way how we design we design timeless We have timeless design, it's good quality and has to be plug and play. So mm -hmm. the fact that we move into a, a full focus on, on circularity, it, it just fits. So that, it just that's feels part. right and you yeah, have the promise. Right. Yeah. yeah, so yeah. that is also something we can deliver. Nice. So people don't feel a kind of a tension between what's claimed outside by the brand and how things are in fact lived internally. So there is consistency in a way there is consistency consistency of course and we're not yet there eh? we need to take all the steps we found our our, mm. our, our kind of our, our roadmap we and now we have to take all the steps and start to everybody needs to embed it in their in their roles and and take it forward because you can't do it all by yourself in the sustainable just the sustainability department it mm. has to be the whole organization has mm. to join in And, and, and work on it. Of course, that's not your department, but you are part of the board then, close to the board. How important is that topic also when you when it comes to recruiting new talents? Is the topic for them of joining an organization that has this topic on their full circle, on their agenda, is this important for talents, young talents to join a company? Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, what I hear from my colleagues is that, yes, uh, it's always a topic that's explained that it's, uh, they ask for it. What do you do about it? So it is a topic that's on the agenda, definitely of younger talents that join companies. You've been around the sustainability block for around 16 years now, and you've worked for both big and small organizations. So what is your view in terms of the readiness or the maturity when you look at big-sized or smaller companies when it comes to embarking or progressing on the sustainability transformation? What is the difference from your observation? I have seen that in, in the group of bigger companies, there are a lot of rules and regulations. So most of the time, they are already really yeah, into the topic. Mm -hmm. But just most of the time, just following the ESG rules. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the smaller companies depends on maybe their brand DNA. Some mm. companies already exist for smaller companies exist for 15 years and haven't done anything about it because there also was no push. But also you have smaller companies that just started from yeah, their whole DNA or their whole brand is sustainability. So they're mm. ahead of the game. But I also see that there is a big difference between industries. So in the fashion industry, we all know how much 
rules and regulations there are, how much there's pushed on sustainability within that industry and how many crises there have been. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the furniture industry, I think we're, uh, the, the industry is still a little bit behind. And now slowly, I think in the past two years, you see so many more projects starting and, and there's more focus on it and the online retailers are focusing on it. So, so it's more an industry topic? Less so uh, size of the organization, would you say? Yeah, yeah, I think it's more an industry topic. But then, and but then, still, you in every industry you see mm-hmm. that the bigger companies are ahead of the smaller ones. Mm-hmm. And I do see to get a more yeah, le- same level playing field that that the rules and the regulations are really needed, and that now finally after 16 years, more rules and regulations are there. Yeah, because kindly asking for improvements rarely works. So rules and regulations are needed to make a change now. And you also mentioned, I mean, what I found interesting at the beginning of our conversation that you said that in terms of the size of the organization, actually now your organization with with just 80 people, you are fast, you're small, you can have the agility to do things quickly. Um, whilst I would say bigger organizations maybe have more financial resources to, you know, probably... Um, budget this function and budget on this topic. I guess there are pros and cons for both organizational forms, I guess, no? Yeah, true. Eh? Or maybe smaller companies are maybe a bit more creative and, yeah. and do more themselves. And work more across departments. departments. Anyway. It's, yeah. it's, it's often shocking to see when you work with mid-sized, big-sized companies how much they indeed work in those silos. Silos, yeah. No, we, we, I need everybody within this smaller organization to get this going. And then that's also what you see and what helps to get the topic to the next level. Yes. And in your experience, what have been the biggest challenges when starting a, a sustainability transformation, both with Fatboy and with previous companies? I think the biggest challenges have been added on the one hand that you, you need to find that one click really with the brand. So the sustainability roadmap really has to match the brand in a way, the mm-hmm. DNA of the brand to get it into the, into the work and into the minds of the entire company, of all the mm-hmm. employees in the company. Because as we said before, you don't want to be working in silos. Mm-hmm. And you, need, you need everybody on board to get the topic going. I think also uh, you get a lot of um, you can get a lot of pushback and not said it's in every organization, but sometimes budget indeed is, is stopping you. And I think, yeah, you, you need, you need to take even small steps will get you somewhere. So you just need to start and maybe also be start to communicate because that helps you also. Eh? You need some progress. Some, you need, some you need progress, but you, some, yeah, you need little success, but you also need. Yeah, to start uh, being transparent because then then all of a sudden you get going in a way because you're also pushed a little bit from, uh, from the outside. Okay, and, and as I said before, I, I, I really think at the moment in time we need more laws and regulations on this so that we get that level playing field for mm-hmm. everybody on the mm-hmm. same, that everybody's on the same level okay. and that we all start to do something. And, uh, and that's something I've said already for 15, 16 years. And now, and we've waited way too long, if you've yeah. seen where we are and which state the world is at the moment. Yes, yes, yes. And so last question, um, you said, you know, in terms of engagement 
within your organization on that topic. Can you elaborate quickly on this? How do you also um, engage with your value chain actors on your sustainability roadmap, on the vision that you have, on the objectives that you want to? How do you take them on this journey and, and also yeah, hold them accountable on certain standards that, that you have? Yeah, that, of course, on the one hand, your stakeholders are your consumers. So that's mm -hmm. um, more easy, the close by and you're in direct contact. And then our supply chain is the supply chain based in Europe is more easy to reach mm -hmm. and more easy to have that discussion. And we also have a portion of our production comes from China. And that's uh, at the moment quite complicated. It's only via phone and via video calls. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, we can't travel to China at the moment. So we're already disconnected a bit of yeah, more than it felt before but due to corona you're not able to visit them anymore you're not able to meet them and and discuss discuss mm. all these topics so with fat boy for two years and that were uh corona years or pandemic yeah. pandemic years mm -hmm. but uh, we start to explain them what we want what we're looking for what type of different materials we're looking for and then slowly uh, they they join us and start to understand that this is our way forward and 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 that they also have to engage and come also with offer solutions in that okay. in that area. So um, yeah, it, it is a it is also a lot of education of suppliers mm. asking for it. They start to understand it, and then slowly, and you 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 grow also your relationship on that on that topic. Mm. Are you also um, working with NGOs? I guess in general, like compared to your previous industry, you are not heavily uh, you know under attack by any ngo or anything so there's this I, i assume that's not a priority in terms of stakeholders that you currently have no no that's that's, that's definitely less a priority and that's also when i started uh, at the very beginning at fat boils uh, when i did the assessment of the industry also looked in what type of organizations are there Uh, in the netherlands there's one organization that really is focused on, on more sustainable uh, furniture Uh, but it's not really an NGO, uh, like the, like an NGO in the in the fashion industry, like an, an activist group. Mm -hmm. uh, I haven't seen them in um, in the furniture industry yet. Mm -hmm. Super interesting, Frauke. Thank you so much for uh, elaborating a little bit on your experience um, from the industry and on that topic, and also for taking us into Fat Boys' machine room, so to say, um, and, and tell us how you deal with that topic. It was really interesting. Thank you, and it was nice talking to you. Thank you for listening to Future Ready. This was the third episode in our sustainability season. In the upcoming episodes, we will continue to hear inspiring sustainability insights from experts in different industries. So, if you want to be inspired to create sustainable change, be on the outlook for that. Future Ready is produced by COSIN, a global communications and change agency on a mission to shape healthy and thriving businesses. Find out more at wearecosin.com. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a review or forward this show to someone who you think will love it. Thank you very much for this and until very soon.